You are listening to the Savage Wonder Podcast. This show is a long-form one-on-one conversation with a veteran or immediate family member in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt, nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events. My guest today is somebody I've been interested in speaking to for about six months, uh, I think, when I read his play, uh, playwright Dennis Meadows. Dennis uh, placed second in our 10-minute playwriting competition for his play, A Brush Against the Indifference of the Universe, Um, a play that sounds very... I don't know, uh, highfalutin, uh, maybe even pretentious, kind of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind kind of thing. Um, it's like, wait, where are you going with this? Or unbearable lightness of being, you know, like those kind of titles that kind of conjure up those types of plays. And instead, it is a riveting, and I mean that really riveting, uh, two-person play about two Jewish paintbrush salesmen discussing paintbrushes and the sale of paintbrushes and the marketing of the sale of paintbrushes and then ends up with a shocking end that kind of ties it all together. And I guess Dennis kind of gives it away in the interview, if I remember right. Um, But uh, I won't give it away here. I'll leave a little bit of intrigue um, for folks listening, but it's uh, I I was blown away by it. Uh, the I mean, the moment I read it, the dialogue was incredible, and I love dialogue about mundane subjects that is actually not mundane and has some undercurrent, some you know, uh, volatility beneath the surface, uh, whether it's thematic or whether it's subtext or what have you. And, um, and this play had it. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic piece of work. Um, just, yeah, really, really thrilling. I, I read it, and I was like, that's just about as close to a picture-perfect Tim in a play as you get. Um, anyway, so really, uh, so it was also the kind of play, though, that made me want to talk to Dennis a lot, uh, not just because I like to talk to people that have won grants from us, but also... Um, you know, understand where it came from. I was like, why this play? Why now? Um, Because I could see a lot of timeliness to it. Um, But, you know, you kind of want to know what made you create this story right now. And and we talk about that on the show, so I won't talk about it here. Uh, Dennis is just, uh, uh, he's lived such a New Yorker life. Um, You know, and like most New Yorkers, he wasn't born in New York um, and didn't come to New York till you know, he was an adult, but has made it his home and has gone through uh, the artistic ringer in the city as a writer, you know, working the day jobs, trucking away, searching for an agent and all that. And, um, you know, clearly a very talented writer. And I I can't tell you how much that means to me. Um, You know, as he and I talk about on the show, you know, I had a lot of unrequited art 
in my family and to find folks that aren't getting the recognition that I think they deserve um, means a lot. And uh, anyway, we have a wide ranging conversation. Uh, I mean, he's done, uh, you know, we talk a lot about, <laughs> about what it was like when he drove a cab for five or six years in the 1970s in New York City, which, you know, as I point out, is when the movie Taxi Driver came out. Um, and it was a hell of an interesting time to be driving a cab in the city. Um, there hasn't really been uninteresting times to drive a cab, but that might have been the the apex of the interesting times to drive a cab in New York City. Um, and some of those stories, yeah, it just interesting life. And uh, obviously, uh, we can't help but spend a lot of time on his first professional foray, which was to be a Jesuit and why he stopped. And yeah, just an interesting life. I really appreciated getting to know a writer that uh, I really was intrigued and fascinated by. So I think that's all you need to know to fully appreciate this conversation. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director at Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is The Savage Wonder of Dennis Meadows. Welcome to the show, Dennis. Thank you. Good. Glad to be here. <laughs> are you are you in Brooklyn? Do I have that right? Yes. Brooklyn, okay. Yes. Are you are you a native Brooklynite? No, I'm from Pittsburgh originally. How long have you been in, in New York? Uh, since 1970. Wow. In Brooklyn the whole time, or did you uh, move around the city? I was in the city for about. Um, let me see if I can remember now. Yeah, for maybe 13, 14 years or so in the city. Okay. Then, then we moved out to Brooklyn. Yeah. Got you. And where in Brooklyn are you? Park Slope. Do you know okay. that area? Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. I was in, um, before I moved out of the city, I was in Bushwick and oh. uh, Bushwick, Williamsburg. I was raised in the city, but, uh, mm-hmm. but then we moved to Brooklyn like everybody else because yeah. we wanted yeah. to pay more in rent. And uh, right. so, you know. Do you do you think it's an advantage? I'm going to start kind of in left field here. Do you think it's okay. an advantage as a playwright to be in New York City? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> it hasn't been a, an advantage for me initially. That's why I came here. Yeah. Uh, to just, you know, be with other artists. And <clears throat> I knew a lot of people were moving in here. Um, but, you know, the advantage of being in a smaller venue, town or something, especially one that has a theater is that you could connect with the theater somehow, hopefully, and and just do your work there. You know what I mean? Try to try to put your roots down there. And so, um, but here it's there's so many playwrights, you know, and and just theater people in general, and and the the and the rents, the real estate is so expensive as you, that there's not that many theaters, unfortunately, and and. Um, you know, a theater will do something of mine, and then I'll never hear. I'll never hear directly from them again. It was. It's like, yeah. You know, it's a one-off. Yeah. For most of us, you know what I mean. So, uh, so I think, it, you know, from my point of view, I'd rather get to a smaller place. In fact, that's why we're thinking of. Well, I'm thinking of relocating, maybe up to New England somewhere, like wow. uh, Vermont or somewhere. Yeah. That I, it's so funny. I mean, as a very biased New Yorker, 
I was like, well, you know, New York's a theater place. That's where you go. And that's where you need to be. And talking Mm -hmm. to so many folks and, um, that have, that are writing plays elsewhere and they're getting their plays up all the time and they're constantly getting feedback. They're able to, you know, know, it's just, it's a more dynamic existence and you're right. If they have a theater wherever they are, boy, Mm -hmm. it really, that's, that's all you can ask for. Yeah. You moved to New York city though, to pursue playwriting, to be actually the, I just finished my master's uh, down in DC. I was living in DC. Okay. So then uh, um, I knew someone who was uh, he was the family is the the husband was had written for a Hallmark Hall of Fame back in the fifties, mm-hmm. and uh, his wife said, "Why don't you you should come up to New York? You know, you'll be connected to the right people. You know, right. this and that." So I said because at that time I wanted to um, uh, get into the movie business, like write screenplays. You know, so I was working on those, and then. When I got here, I moved into, they were out in Rockland County, and then I moved into the city at the end of that summer. And uh, then I fell in somehow, I can't remember exactly why, but I thought to myself, well, I should learn how to write plays and dialogue, so then maybe I can be ready for the move, more ready for the movies, you know? So so I fell in with this group of playwrights, and uh, I mean, I still have written one or two screenplays over the years, but mostly it's my I feel more you know most comfortable writing and I'm I've had more a little more success for sure writing uh plays so were you a writer from an early age was this something that did that was natural and innate to you no not at all when I was a sophomore in high school this one really good teacher we had he, he he had us keep a notebook where we would write on one page one of those little uh here one of these kind of notebooks here. See this guy? Oh yeah, Old sure. Fashioned notebooks. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so yeah. one on each page, we we'd have to write a little short story, uh, just one page long. You know something, and that was when I first uh, got connected to it. But uh, after that, I just you know I didn't think about writing or anything like that for a number of years. What yeah, brought you I, back to it? Well, um, the most interesting thing that I did in a way was back in uh, when I was uh, one year of col- after one year of college, I went into the Jesuits to study for the priesthood. Yeah. And wow. I was in there for five and a half years. And by the end of that experience, when I came out, I uh, I thought to myself, you know, I should... I feel like writing something about that experience. So I wrote a screenplay about it, basically. And that was kind of the launch, the launch pad. So you thought a Jesuitical life was going to be your life. That was the kind of ambition initially. I came from a very uh, tight Catholic, old-fashioned family. My mother, you know, went to church every day and that kind of thing. And and my brother, my older, my father, for this I forgot, he was in the semi, a different seminary, like diocesan seminary for a number of years when he was younger. And then my bro- older brother went into the Marinal Seminary in high school. He went in for another five years. So it was like a family thing to do, you know. Wow. But, um, but yeah. were, you, were you just kind of falling in lockstep or do, were, was there... Were you excited about pursuing that life? Was there? I mean, how did you feel about that? 
about going. Yeah, it's funny because you know when you're that young, you're trying to sort out what what you want to do, what what what's the world about, and so you know I was I wanted to help people, and uh, this looked like you know I admired some priests that I met along the way, and even though I veered off, I didn't have any uh, background with the Jesuits, but but I had read some books about the missionaries and stuff, and I had this fantasy that I would go off to India or something and <laughs> live the rest of my days. But <laughs> but uh, it's a mixed bag for sure in there. So what yeah. what is the, what's the pipeline? I, I'm saying this, it's actually funny. I was just um, last week I was at Fordham talking to some folks about some stuff we may try to do there, and I got the whole lecture on the Jesuits and and. Yeah. And I say the whole lecture to say I got probably a wave top level understanding of uh, of, of the Jesuits. Yeah. What What's the pipeline like when you make that decision? Do you have to go to seminary or what? What do they do to make you a Jesuit? Yes, it's much easier to enter <clears throat> than to leave. Actually, much much okay. easier because okay. they, you know, you're getting a free education, college education. You know, I graduated from Fordham. Actually, did you really? When I was still in there, yeah. Wow. Um, wow. In fact, the, you know, speaking of veterans, uh, my, even though my two brothers went to via, you know, into the service, right. but I um, was in the Jesuits up until right before I left, just before the lottery, and in the lottery I had a high number three forty two, so I I was spared going in because I probably, to be honest with you, I would have been a pacifist i was coming from a pacifist sure in fact my father said to me you you can wind up in prison and then prison is a very dangerous place and of course i never had to make that decision because i was i had the high right. number right yeah so i didn't have to go but but what was the thinking just, yeah. well, what was the th sorry yeah we will get back to the question but okay but that that's a really interesting sidebar what um what was your brother's thinking in joining then were they I mean, all presumably had, were coming from the same philosophical right. point of view, but but for them, what what, what did they think? Why did they do, make a different choice? Well, I think um, the older one. I have an older brother, and I have actually two younger brothers and a sister. But they're the younger two are <clears> much younger. They didn't have to mm -hmm. deal with this. But my older brother, I think they both enlisted. If I'm not mistaken, my older brother was. Uh, he he actually was sent to Japan mm. and uh dealt with traumatized soldiers who were coming from Vietnam. Mm. He mm. was he was kind of doing social work with them. Uh and my but my younger brother who went in, he enlisted in intelligence. So he was right in um working and uh but I think they both thought, you know, there I don't know if um I don't know if you were around in those days, but I don't want to say I, I was born the day that Vietnam officially ended. Oh, really? That was, that okay. was, yeah, that was yeah, go figure. So, yeah. Okay. Good yeah. <laughs> but anyway, he, they thought that it was going to be inevitable. They were going to be drafted, you know, so they thought, well, let's get a step. Let's gotcha. try to do something that we can, we feel better about doing, I guess, you know, so I don't know if that answers the question. No, it, it does. Did you all, I mean, just have curiosity, did you all ever sit down and talk about it after the fact in the years later and go, you know, Hey, yeah, yeah. Sorry. yeah. It's funny because we do, 
the whole sibling group talks to each other once a month now. We started in COVID, Zoom, on Zoom. Wow. So next time we, which is next month, I'll, I'll ask that question. I'll say, I got a very interesting question from someone, <laughs> Chris. <laughs> and let's talk about it because it would be interesting to, to put, you know, to hear what they were thinking at the time. See if, if you I'm accurate. If you had stayed in the Jesuits, would you have been eligible to be drafted at all? No. no we were all, uh, in those days, if you were in a religious, uh, you know, you were covered. And also, I think people who were in college or some kind of degree programs were also not eligible. That's why they, when the lottery came, a lot of those people, they were unhappy to see that they were now eligible, you know, because it's sure. That was lifted, kind of. Yeah. Everybody was, you know, yeah. What did that mean for you then? I mean, that's an extra consideration when you leave the Jesuits. Now you're like, hey, I'm going back into the eligible pool. Yes, right? yes, yes. I mean, was that I, a consideration for you? Well, to be again, to be perfectly truthful, I was supposed to leave in January, and the lottery was not until October. I don't if I don't think we even knew there was going to be a lottery in January. So when I uh, said I was going to leave, the Jesuits themselves said, all right, tell you what we'll do. We won't report that you left yet. We'll let you have like six months, because if you go straight into the army, you're going to be not in great shape, you know, because <laughs> wow. from one kind of, you know, because it's pretty, it's pretty, you know, um, the Jesuits especially were very uh, militaristic in a sense, disciplined, high day discipline. You know, you follow orders. And you. so they thought that I wasn't psychologically, it wouldn't be a good thing for me, I guess. But that was nice of them to do it because I didn't have to deal with that other decision, you know. Sure, sure. On the road, so. <clears throat> Did you, okay, so just so I understand the process then. So when you went into the Jesuits, basically, it's almost like, going to college they'd basically send you right. to to and it was and where did they send you to go well to no it, it, the first three years we <clears throat> were at a very isolated retreat house in uh near reading pennsylvania and you don't have any contact with anybody in the world you uh wow. just with each other you know and and it's pretty intense i mean it, you know it was a beautiful place to be though sure you know they the, the uh, their donors had taken care of the of that part of it for sure right, right. You no know, and so that was and then we went uh up to a place where we studied philosophy which was in New York Shrubrook, New York and near Pisco I guess oh. and that was a different uh scene because it was more like a um, college campus but without you know all the things that the college campuses <laughs> usually have right right. <laughs> Oh, and, and was it so it wasn't quite as monastic you could kind of get out and meander and get well, off campus or no well, we you know once a year we'd go on vacation quote unquote one year we went to the beach for a couple of weeks and there were young ladies down there and that's the first contact we had with you know women again and stuff but normally you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, you know, you'd be studying a lot and staying right, okay. right there. It wasn't a big campus. It was mm. basically one building. And my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, and I probably am because I, I'm, as I, I literally learned about a lot of this last week, somewhat. Yeah. Um, 
Jesuits, so they're not priests per se, but you can't be married. Well, and, what, or, what, and there's like a teaching mission, essentially. I, I don't know. Is that yeah. any of that right? I mean, that, am I, that's, I'm right. that's right. It's you're supposed to, there's, you take three vows uh, poverty, chastity, and obedience. Uh, and you, so you can't be married, right? right. But you don't, um, what was the, the, I lost my train of thought there for a moment. Did you, you asked me about if, oh, it, you're studying, you're not priests yet, right? But you wear the collar and everything, but you're going to, you, eventually you're going to be ordained, which is in the Jesuits at that time, it was 13 years before you got ordained. As a so, priest? As, yes. Okay. All right. Yes, gotcha. exactly. Yeah. And, and, but you can't be married and, um, yeah, you take that vow of celibacy. That's the big one. Uh, of course. Yeah, I don't doubt yeah. it. And well, and on top of it, I mean, the the mission though, the Jesuits exist to teach. Is that right? Do I have that right? Oh no, they 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 do. That's that's the primary mission. There are a lot of professor, you know, college. They run right. colleges. You've heard of those, I guess, Georgetown for one. And, sure. But they 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 do. You know, they're missionaries. They go off to other countries, uh, and they're. You know, they they're considered in the church uh, kind of like the intellectuals mm. of the church. There's a lot of um, a lot of scholars, I guess. You okay. know, people write books and stuff. But okay. I wrote a whole play about my experience. I wrote first. I wrote a screenplay. You know, at the when I first came out, but then I wrote a play years later after they. Uh, all the pedophile things came out and uh yeah that's but i haven't been able to persuade anybody to do it yet because it's kind of it's a little bit harsh you know in sure. some ways it's a little dark did, uh, did you see some of that was there was that present you know that that's an interesting question because you know back then this was uh the 60s uh there wasn't any talk about it right on the, in the open but, you know, at least two guys whom I knew well in there were thrown out of the, of the novitiate, it was called, because they had, they had found them in bed one morning together, mm. you know. And then mm. and, and I had another experience where this one other guy that was later on, I guess, he fell in love with me or something, had a crush on me, and they found him drunk under my bed one night. And, uh, wow. you know, wow. so, so it was, it was in the air, you know, because I mean, there was a lot of repressed uh, yeah. sexuality in there. Yeah. You know? Young men being asked to be chased. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Wow. For you, what was the, what, first off, uh, are you, were you going to be the first Jesuit in your family or? Yes. Okay. For, yeah. Cause the other, my <clears throat> older brother and my father both dropped out. So I was, I was left by myself in the in the on that route yeah road. And, and was your family still very enthusiastic about you doing it were they excited yeah. for you okay yeah right. and that's why it was tough for them when i left you know i mean i i'm sure it was tough i didn't have long conversations with them but you know and i don't know if you were going to ask yeah it was what was my motivation for leaving at that time yeah what was the breaking point yeah well you know one of the things, and my father spoke about this too when he left, is that one thing you have to do is go up in front of all these 
the faithful, you know, and say, you need to give us money. It's that constant thing of we need to keep asking for money. It's like politicians, I guess. <laughs> I could never do that either. But wow. that was one thing. And the other thing was I just started feeling, you know, as I grew older and sorted myself out, just feeling very uncomfortable about being, uh, ex- you know, when because we had to wear the collar when we went out, you know, and people right. looking at us and and thinking a whole lot of things. And, you know, it's, uh, and it, you know, it's, it's a complicated thing because you're leaving your buddies usually, you know, it's like being in the trenches with people. Right. And uh, so that, that was a little hard, you know, my best Just friends. Just being, being public, being like in public. In, yes. yes it, a target it, on your back. So. Yeah, exactly. Because people are, you know, they look at you and it's like wearing, I'm sure anybody like the, um, the Orthodox down here mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, they get mm-hmm. looked at all the time and, you know, cause it's like a cult in a way, you know, for some people, not for everybody, yeah. but I felt, and you know, as a playwright now, I spend most of my time by myself and I don't like to be, I couldn't be a, live the actor's life, a celebrity's life of mm. somebody constantly bothering you and yeah. looking at you and stuff, you know? Yeah. Anyway, that was part of it, I think. Yeah. yeah that's, a, that's really interesting because, um, because then you went into the playwright's life where we, we in the, the you know the theater world we always ask for money but it is to it, yeah. but it is a bit a bit of a different dynamic um yeah. when you left did you have an idea of where you wanted to go what you wanted to do what did you what twists and turns did you think your life was going to take when you left you know it's funny because i i was finishing uh let me think it was 1969. Yeah, I was already in uh, graduate school at uh, at uh, George Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I knew I was going to finish that. Funny thing was the Jesuits. I was wanted them to send me to film school, but they didn't think that was a that was a good thing for a Jesuit to do. <laughs> so they said, "No, you go get something more." Uh, you know, I was in English uh, American Civilization. They called it. Okay. That's what I was getting my master's in. Gotcha. But okay. so I went down to DC and uh well actually I I I um I was already in DC. Here's another interesting part of it. They sent me to uh, live at Georgetown. And I was a uh uh counselor on the floor on uh in a dormitory. Mm-hmm. And uh that was an interesting experience although most of the young People there were uh, from very well-off families, mm-hmm. and that was they were. My general take on that as a generalization was they a lot of them were had been neglected by their uh, type A fathers, I guess, and they were pretty needy people. Um, you know, they they got themselves drinking a lot and all that stuff. Sure. You know, but sure. anyway, but I was sent to Georgetown. I lived on the dorm, uh, where I. Next, like before I lived in the dorm, I can't remember exactly, but we had to eat in the uh, where all the older Jesuits ate. And uh, the f- weird thing about that was all the servers, the waiters in this ca- in this dining room were black. And that's the first time it hit me like, what? Hit, what's going on here? This is uh, all the other people were white, all the Jesuits and the 
And, but all these all these waiters were black. And of course, didn't, I didn't realize it at the time, but they appreciated the having the jobs. But I was astounded that, you know, these people were being asked to serve us at this point, you know. Yeah. So that was, you know, that helped me to think that I didn't, I felt very uncomfortable to, you know, eating there and stuff. But anyway, since I was in wow. D.C., I finished my master's, which took another year and a half or something. And they kept paying for it? I mean, who was paying for you to be there then? Oh, actually, when I left, they then I started to pay for it. Yeah, I was, can't remember how that happened. I guess my my parents must have jumped in because I think I had one semester paid for and then okay. I had to finish yeah. up with paying. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but then during that master's program, you started, was that when you met your Hallmark Hall of Fame writer friend you started to think yeah. about that as an option i met i met the mother and her two kids on a bus they were on their way to kansas and i was on my way to pittsburgh and their kids who are teenagers young teenagers they came back and started just talking to me and and then the mother introduced herself and then she found out you know maybe by then i had already uh started to talk about writing i don't know i can't remember exactly you know but okay yeah but one thing I should tell you is that um, I had a great experience with a professor there. His name is Robert Gantz. He's 98 now. Wow. But his father was a famous pediatrician in Boston. Okay. And he, my my mentor, uh, he became my thesis mentor, you know. He, um, he went through Harvard all the way from nursery school through Harvard College. Maybe went to Harvard PhD, I guess, too. In other words, Harvard's connected to all these schools. And so he just went completely along. He had Robert Frost as a professor wow. at one point. And he was an amazing scholarly guy, but very down to earth. And uh he he I think he left Boston, my guess is because his he didn't he was Robert Gantz Jr. And he didn't he wanted to get a little separation from his mm. dad because sure. Harvard wanted him to stay. Obviously, he was right. he was his his main. He's been writing a book about Frost for probably seventy years or something. Wow. Never lets it go because he keeps rethinking. Yep. yep, yep. You know, so maybe hopefully I'm hoping to read it. I guess he's oh going to allow it to be published when he went after posthumously, right? <laughs> So I'm still in touch with him, and uh, he's well, been a great influence. Yeah. That book's probably keeping him alive. It's probably, yeah, exactly. True, too. You know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I had a father that yeah. was somewhat the same way that you know uh -huh. was writing the great American novel and uh, kept him yeah. alive until, you know, finally it, he never got it done. But, but never yeah, it, yeah, yeah. But you but were it, attempted to jump well, in and finish it. <laughs> I, I, I offered repeatedly. I, uh, I said, really? can, can I help? And, and we talked, but he, he had his ideas. And it was weird, not to make this about me, but yeah, it was weird because um, his body started shutting down. Oh, and I was yeah. like, it was kind of like, it was kind of like the, the book, you know, mm -hmm. and it was like, yeah. you know, and, and, and finally it just, it, it, it closed for him, but it's, mm -hmm. so yeah, I'm very sensitive to that idea of like, yeah. you're telling, you got a story to tell and, uh, and you've been <laughs> chewing on it for a while, you know, and really there, there's yeah. something to that. Um, I mean, God yeah. bless. That's a, that's a, the ideas that yeah. drive somebody to do that, but wow, mm -hmm. for you, were you, um, what was the inciting moment? that made you start to think about writing because there you are. I mean, you're out of the Jesuits. You're taking the American history, American civilization, 
Yeah. Where does writing start to fit in? Uh, it's, it, you know, I, I'm always been a, a reader, right? That's mm-hmm. where writing starts, mm-hmm. I think, for most of us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I took this one, I had this one uh, assignment once, I forget where it was, but you take, you, you uh, write the same story in different author's styles, right? And you just yeah. do that, like take five or six authors and you, you copy their style, but it's your story, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that struck me as, you know, that the challenge of doing that. And so I said to myself, you know, writers, every writer, you know, this has to find their own voice. And you, and the only way I was able to do that was to start writing, you know, and because I never really went to any official school. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I should have, <laughs> but because <laughs> you get connections sometimes. Sure. sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, uh, so, you know, I got some enc- early encouragement. I, I, uh, the O'Neill, Lloyd Richards, do you remember his name? Yeah, he, sure. he, I, I was a semifinalist with the seminary play that I wrote. Uh, I guess I changed the screenplay. I wrote a, I wrote a, uh, a play about the same experience, right? right and then I right. sent it to him and he was very encouraging. He said, you just missed it, becoming a finalist, that kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, but keep send us more of your stuff and that kind of thing. So I was pretty young then and that kind of encouragement helped, you know. Gotcha. And so yeah. that, how how quickly, how long after seminary did you write that play? Probably uh a year wow. at the most, you know. Wow. I, you know, okay. yeah. All right. You know, the whole thing about writing, I don't know if other writers tell you this, but I learned pretty early on that I have to write and then rewrite and then rewrite and then rewrite. Because it never comes, except sometimes a little short 10-minute play will come right. quick. But the long plays, uh, that's, they're, they're <laughs> I just have to keep going back, you know, yeah. starting over. So you were writing a play very soon after you let, left the Jesuits. Pretty, pretty soon, yeah, pretty soon. So theater yeah. was kind of on your radar in some way, right? Because yes. you wouldn't naturally... Like you might have gravitated immediately to like short stories or a novel yeah. or something, but why theater? Why do you think? I mean, was it be, were you already thinking of screenplays and there was a logic to it, or what was well, the thought process? Well, actually, um, in the division, which is the first three years, I think the second year we had a little contest. Four of us wrote little one act plays, and my really? play, yeah, my play was the most. Uh, you know it was it's you know it's a little embarrassing to think about it now but it was about this somebody stealing something and anyway (laughs) but it was put on and i got some good feedback you know and stuff a buddy of mine my my friend wrote a very funny play about monks who were growing pot and his was definitely the best play and uh but anyway but because of that early experience and then also i i was in i was acting in there too we did we had some theater stuff really oh so wow. i played uh 
What's the guy in Waiting for Godot? The guy who gets kicked, Pazzo? Pazzo, yeah, Pazzo, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I really got kicked by the actor. Was, <laughs> he wasn't trained. Right. <laughs> wow. But, so, so, yeah. so, so it was really in the Jesuits that you started yeah. to get to get into theater. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah. What, what was the inspiration for screenplays? Did you think that there was a, just, it made more sense? It was going to be a proper life or... Did you also like movies? And you were like, oh, no, I'd like to do that, too. You know, I was we were in the era when we were we, we, we used to get movies to to see in the seminary. And uh, we were seeing Bergman and and uh, Fellini and all these great uh, Sajid Ray and all those guys. Wow. And I, I just said to myself, you know, I'd like to be like them. <laughs> you know, but yeah. It's the yeah. Easier said than done. Sure. Of course. Yeah. Of course. So, so when you got out, did you think, um, did you think theater was going to be a ladder to screenplay or did, were you just happy to do theater for theater's own sake? Yeah. I actually applied to a temple and got accepted to do documentary film. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I, but I, uh, wrote them a letter and said, I'm not, I haven't decided to do it yet. Can you, can I get a deferment? And they said, fine you know, let us know ne next year if you want to come. And I just, I, I guess I wrote them and said, no, I'm, I've, I'm doing other things. I think it had to do with money too, by then, mm -hmm. you know, but that would have been probably a nice thing to do looking back, but. Sure. I mean, yeah. you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I so. so what did you start doing for money then? So now that you had to put one foot in front of the other financially, yeah. what, what, what did you start doing? to pay See, I In DC, I had a number of, Funny little jobs. One, I was, um, I was, was I doing? I, it, I was working with this young woman who had cerebral palsy, I guess, and I was being paid to take her around to events, like and wow. and uh, do stuff like that. Um, let me think, what else? Oh, I was, I worked at a uh, a YMCA with kids. I was, I was like, you know like a counselor, well, not a counselor exactly, because we just did, these were young kids, we just did mm. sports, you know, mm. sport mm -hmm. type things. Jobs like that, I can't remember off the top of my head what else I did. Then when I came to New York, I, I worked in a hotel as the front door, as one of those clerks. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then eventually um, I got into um, driving a cab. So Did you really? Yeah, for about five, six years. Yeah. And then wow. I got, then finally I got into the Times because they, they had a room full of uh, women taking ads over the phone and they needed to hire men who can type. So we got hired. And then I, I got into there and I, I was laid off once, but was the union got me to, allowed me to come back. And then I just stayed there for years as a part, it was a part-time job Wow, with great benefits. Yeah. That, you know, that's, that makes sense. And I can see that. And probably it's, I, I'm guessing that probably a lot of people in the theater world were working those jobs. It right. was part-time, flexible hours, exactly. maybe. Yeah. Good benefits. Well, I, I, yeah. there's no way I can let the cab driver thing go because yeah. is my timeline right? Would that have been, you were driving a cab in the seventies? 70s yeah early 70s yeah so I was, what so when taxi driver comes out you were literally driving a taxi around that yeah time? yeah about that time yeah. i didn't have a tv though so <laughs> i didn't see the shows but yeah 
But when, I was robbed a number. Well, yeah, times. I was going to say. I mean, because that that yeah. I mean, I know the New York City I was born into. Yeah. I mean, that that was no freaking picnic. I mean, what, yeah. yeah t- tell me about that. I mean, first mm-hmm. off, stories. Did you? Was it one of those things where you were like, I could get stories from this. I can get inspiration. Or were you like, no, I'm really hoping I can make some serious <laughs> money doing this. Yeah. Well, serious money. I don't know if that's money. You know, <laughs> money. Basically, yeah. the livelihood. I worked like four after in the afternoon to about one, two in the morning, you know, that shift. Yeah. And the traffic just drives, even back then it was bad, you know, sure. but not as sure. bad as it is now, but, but um, it was a good experience. You know, I, I talked to some people, you know, along the way you see some celebrity, you know, actors who are famous and Woody Allen, whom I didn't have a good experience with. Oh, <laughs> really? <say>. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you want to hear that story, but <laughs> I, I I do because I'm I'm taking some heat. I'm actually considering doing a Woody Allen play uh, uh, at our parlor, um, and 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 I'm getting so much heat from it from some of my good friends. Like, I can't believe you're going to do a Woody Allen play. I'm like, look, I, I grew up on Woody Allen movies. Like, if I have a yeah, chance exactly. to do a Woody Allen play, you know, it, I, I you yeah, know, yeah. I'm just happy to do it. But anyway, no, I'd love to. I if you're comfortable telling it, I would I would love to hear a Woody oh, Allen yeah, story. I'll, I'll yeah. tell it because I was, you know, I was pretty naive and I. I picked him up. Well, first of all, he, uh, I, you know, you recognize him right away because he's uh, he always dressed the same, even though he gave up the impression he didn't want anybody to, to, to just, you know, the hoi polloi to talk to him, basically. But so when I pick him up, he's talking to these three women. Actually, they came in the cab with him and he dropped a couple of them various places, you know, and then then I'm you know, it's just he and I. And I said to him, oh, I really admire your work and everything. And, and we're, we're I, you know, we were coming through the park and he lives right across from, uh, or he did, I don't know. He probably still lives there, one of his houses, I don't know. But he lives from the big museum there on the left side of Fifth Avenue. So we're coming out of the park on the, we're still in the park. And he says to me, let me out right here. And I said, because there's no houses around there. I said, okay. He just like the wall came down, the curtain, boom. And, uh, you know, hands me the money. And then he, uh, it was just, you know, I thought to myself, I mean, I picked up Peter Falk once. And Peter Falk was the exact opposite. Peter Falk was warm. Curious, yeah. 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 And he was like, he treated me like a fellow human being. Whereas I felt Woody just, you know, you're not an, you're not worthy to be talking to me kind of message. Right, right. But then uh, I guess a year later or something, I pick him up again. And of course he doesn't remember me, but he, again, he's with women who were admiring him, talking him up and stuff. He's always surrounded, I guess, by these ladies. Um, and uh, I, I didn't say a word to him that time because I, by then yeah. I was, I was not in his, his school <laughs> camp. I mean, it wasn't, it's not a big, it's a moment in his life, which but for me, it, it really, of course. yeah, you know, it just felt, I felt like, whoa, uh, you know, I should just drive by him the next time I see him waving. <laughs> you know? Was it, was that your route? Were you on the Upper East Side? Did you always go up no, there? No, you, you try to go where the, where the money is, you know, mm, where people okay. are going to be catching those cabs. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. One time I was directing a play in, uh, at the Washington Square Theater, which is a, I mean, it's just a church, and they, we were doing it in the basement. And that we had one black actor in the cast, and he says to me, um, 
could you come out and get me a cab? Because yeah. yeah. these guys are going to all go yeah. by me. And I, yeah. I went, oh, okay, no problem. And I flagged down somebody and opened the door, and the guy thought I was getting in. And, you know, yeah. he got in. And But he, you know... That's that's the kind of world it was then. You of course, know, I used to I used to pick up. You got me on the cab stories now. Oh, I love it. I love cab I, stories. I used to like pick up pick up people. I thought that other cabs were going to go by. So one time I picked up these two guys going up to Harlem, and uh, one of the guys jumps out part of the way there, and the other guy he says to me, uh, "You can stop right here," and it was right next to the park. And he says to me, um, I said, are you going to pay for the fare? And he said, no, I'm not going to pay. But he said, appreciate you picking me up. <laughs> and then he jumped <laughs> out. <laughs> so, the, so the next time this happened, it was in Queens. And I picked up these six young black women, uh, teenagers, I think. And they all piled in, you know, almost the car. Yeah, yeah. And there was one woman who was the biggest she was the biggest woman of the large body. And she was telling them, uh, once we got to their destination, she said, okay, we're done. You don't have to pay. We're all getting out. And I just, that time I really got mad and I started yelling at them. Of course she got out, but there's two younger women. Uh, you know, I said, you can't, you know, I'm out here trying to do a job. You could at least pay the fare. I don't expect any tip or anything. And they actually paid then. You know, it was only a couple of bucks. Yeah, right. You know, it, right. it was the principle, though. By then, I was like, stuff, you know. Yeah. So. Did you have to carry but, a gun? Yeah. You know, it's a funny story. Um, no. I mean, I think some cabbies did, yeah. for sure. Yeah. I, I didn't, I'm not good around guns. But uh, one time, I was coming back from the, from the, ter- from the garage. It was about 2 in the morning. and noticed the guy following me. And uh, he's probably an addict, actually. And uh, so I started running. And then I saw a doorman sitting inside his thing. So I went in there for a moment. I said, okay, like, I just need to get my breath back and we'll see if the guy's still out there. So I didn't yeah. see him. So I went back out and he was back. He starts following me again. Then we passed this little old lady walking towards us. And I said, oh, maybe he'll stop it with her. <laughs> Instead of me, because then, because I was a pretty young guy running, you know. Yeah. And he didn't. He kept after me. And we got to the bus, which I was going to catch to go across town or something. And the bus was just sitting there. And so I get on the bus and oh, I'm, I'm panting, you know, out of breath. Yeah. The guy starts getting on the bus, but he doesn't have a fare. So the bus driver's sitting there, big guy, you know. He says to him, uh, You either pay your fare or get off my bus. And so the guy, you know, he was very frustrated, the, the guy who was running after me. So he gets off, and the, guy, and the bus driver closes the door, and he says, and he reaches under his seat, and he shows me his gun, and he says, you you should carry one of these. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. But well, I, New York you know, City in 1970s, yeah, I mean, it was fucking Wild West. It was, it was yeah, the, you know, that whole, the whole, because of the rich people and then the, you know, there was there's such a difference between and some desperation out there. And but I, I was lucky because I never got hurt by any of these people. When I worked in the hotel, yeah. just to veer off into another story. Please. Yeah. You know, these two guys came in one night and they're looking at the uh the uh they're asking us a bunch of questions. I was there with an older guy, and uh we were right behind the desk where the money is, you know, and there's also a camera there which 
these guys probably knew. But they anyway, they were we we found out they were casing the joint because after that, she, this other guy comes in who looked he was pretty spaced out, and he he shows us his the barrel of his his rifle, which is tucked down into his pants. And he says, give me all your money, you know, and don't try anything funny. So, you know, I tell the, the older guy next to me was freaked out because, yeah. you know, but I, my thought was this guy is, is uh, he, he doesn't seem to be in any shape to, to do anything. But anyway, the older guy puts all the bills on the counter and I picked up all the change and I just dropped it on the counter like <laughs> I was scared. <laughs> and the money's rolling everywhere, you know. So the guy grabs the money and he runs out, you know. And then about two weeks later, I, I leave my shift ended at two. And I leave and I see, I walk by the car and I see these two guys who had cased the joint and uh, they were waiting for, till I was gone <laughs> so they could go in and do it again. <laughs> With this older oh guy my God. staying on. What hotel was that? Where'd you work? It was called the Hotel President. A lot of theater uh, cast stayed there. Not the stars, but the okay. chorus people. Uh, hair. Oh, yes. Yeah. Was there, yeah. for instance. But the end of the story was, weeks later, the cops bring me in to look at photographs. And they said, tell us who it was. You know, and I'm going along, going along, going along. I see these two guys who cased the joint. I said, oh, here's two guys. I recognize these two. And they said, good, we'll wrap, wrap it. I said, wait a minute. I said, they didn't rob the store, the, I, the hotel. They they just cased it. You know, and I don't see the picture of the other yeah. guy. Yeah, He's yeah, yeah. He's not in your file. Yeah. So they said to me, no, no, you, you got to tell it. You got to say that they robbed it. It's the same thing as casing it. I said, no, I can't I can't get on the stand and say that. So they, yeah. they just, they never called me to come to the trial. Oh, that's funny. You know, wow. Yeah. How much of this, I mean, you're bringing back so many memories for me. Uh, it was, it was one of those things that I've tried to tell people this, that we're not, or they're not from New York. I'm like, mm -hmm. if you live for a good length of time in the city, I think probably even now, but certainly seventies, eighties, early nineties, mm -hmm. there was, there was a lot of violence. There's a lot of weird stuff. There's a lot of exposure to crime mm -hmm. just that you would have just minding your own business. And when I tell people that they think you're making up stories or, or you're <laughs> looking for it, and I'm like, no, no, you don't get it. Like you're, you're, you're walking along <clears throat> and next thing you know, some guy tries to punch you on the subway. It's just, that's yeah. how the city was. Yeah. Um, how much of that bled into your writing? Did you find that it was completely irrelevant to your writing or did you find that there, yeah. you know, there, some of it had to make its way in? Yeah, it's a, that's a good question. I haven't actually thought about that. I don't write much about, uh violence is per se you know i write kind of things that it seems like just ordinary stuff going on but underneath hopefully there's, right. there's more going on you know um one thing i used to do just speaking of walking the streets i never walked near buildings i'd walk on the outer edge of the curb you know because yep. you never know who's yeah. lurking in the in the yeah. and my sister came up to visit me one time back in those days and she was mad at me and she she was young she was about 18 or something 17 she's mad at me so she said i'm just staying right here on the sidewalk i'm just you go ahead and i said to her you know what if you stand here for a couple of minutes people are going to think you're a prostitute and they're going to come up and start talking funny to you so i suggest we keep moving <laughs> you know? you know? 
So how did you feel? Um, especially since you weren't from New York originally and you were coming from DC, how'd you feel being in the city? Did, was it a bit of a culture shock? Did it feel like you were home? Like what, what was your, yeah. you know, and I'm saying this because yeah. like anybody that spends a lot of time in the city and is in the arts, it, the right. city has to become, you know, you know it's, it's part of the, of, of your DNA at that point. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I actually, you know, I liked it. Um, the, just because of the diversity of people here, you know, there's faces just in mm-hmm. also I walked all over the place, which was a good feel, you know, good thing to do. And I was lucky I got into, uh, when I first came in, my first apartment was like a, a, a large closet on uh, 85th Street in in the in the park on the west side. Wow! And because I was lucky, I met this German guy who was paranoid. He was leaving. I met him in a camera store, and he was leaving this the city. He was going back to Germany because he was afraid somebody was after him or something. So he said, "I can I can have you take over my apartment. I'll sell you my camera really cheap." Uh, I can't remember even what else, but the apartment was basically, it was like a narrow, uh, about 10, 12 feet long. I could fit two single beds <laughs> end to end. It had a hot plate. The bathroom was down the hall, but it was a great location. 85th Incredible. for being a yeah. city, you know, I went in the park all the time and, you know, so I had a series of gradually increased apartments, but in those days, uh, they were still affordable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. What was the what was your writing like now that you were in the city? Uh, did you start to establish a rhythm of writing? Was it something where you were where were you kind of driven by? Okay, hey, I want to try to pitch a show to a theater, so I'm going to write something for here. Or did you just find yourself compulsed to write on an ongoing basis? And like, what was you what was going on for you artistically? Um. Yeah. Well, I was trying to trying to set up one of those kind of uh, disciplined, mm. you know, mm. patterns. But I've always had trouble with that. Mm. Uh, I'm a great procrastinator, <laughs> so I have to, you know, gradually get to it in the day, kind of thing. So, yeah. And as far as pitching, uh, that was my worst. Uh, my marketing skills are almost nil, and I wasn't, you know. I used to go around to theaters, but I had a good friend. I still have a good friend who's a actor and director. And, uh, you know, he, he, he was helpful, but he was, he, you know, um, I don't know how to say this, but he, he was a downtown actor. He wasn't interested in doing anything commercially. He just wanted to do good work. You know, he had had his own theater out in Portland, Oregon. Mm. Uh, for a number of years, Shakespeare, I think, he did a lot of Shakespeare, and and he he was, you know, in, in those days there were a lot of anti-establishment people around, and sure, sure, you know, so that's who I I connected with, and 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 uh, he, you know, we're still he's still uh, we still work together sometimes, you know, on stuff, but but as far as getting it done commercially you know that's been a, a difficult path for me and i uh, i had an agent i almost had an agent but then i wrote a play that was a, that was kind of superficial and the agent dropped me wow. uh, i probably had other lots of other people he's pretty, i think he's pretty well known peter franklin is his name okay 
good agent. I mean, it would have been nice, but that was a real turning point for me because, you know, it's very difficult to get into a lot of theaters without an agency marching for you, you know. Of course. Just so, and cold. Yeah. so then talk about the motivation then, because, it, I mean, I get it. If you're slaving away and working on stuff and going, I don't see a commercial prospect mm-hmm. for this right. work, what was driving you? I mean, you could have quit. You could have gone, yeah. I'm going to sell real <laughs> estate, you know, like, right. I mean, you know, but, but you didn't. So what yeah. was going on? Yeah. You know, that's a good question too, because I mean, I just love doing it. I guess that's the uh, the thing, you know, and I thought to myself, eventually if I am teaching, you know, every time I start something new, you're learning something about, you know, trying to, what makes it work and structure. I had a lot of, it's a steep climb to get structure in the long plays. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, I just, the challenge of, of making it happen and, you know, and then I thought eventually if, if uh, I meet, you have to, you have to connect with somebody who says, wow, I'm going to do this play or I like this work. And, you yeah. know, and that hasn't quite happened. I mean, I've gotten some stuff done over the years, but uh, especially the short works, you know, yeah. uh, but um, it, I don't know if it'll happen because, you know, I'm getting up there, but <laughs> well, I'm alive. And once you, once you're not alive, your chances are, or less less <laughs> likely, right? Yeah, it does say something. If 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 your marketing skills are better after you pass than before, right. yeah, 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 <laughs> that would be something. Yeah. But do you find that the ten minute plays come from it? Is that a different muscle group for you than what it takes to write the full length? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, it's like a little spurt of imagination and an idea that this will work in a short piece, and this looks interesting, you know. Um, to work on sometimes it takes a while to do them but most of the time it's much shorter whereas the long plays i just i usually write up to a certain point and then i go i have to start over again write it again write it again i'm trying to rewrite something right now that had five characters long play mm. and i'm trying to cut it down to three because mm. i think the two extra people don't need to be there and then plus it's easier to get a play done with three people than five. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It makes a huge difference yeah. for, for you. Um, did you ever, did you ever want to just go to leave the communal aspect of writing and being in the theater and just go, look, let me write a novel. Let me write a short. Mm-hmm. So let me write something that I have complete unilateral control over. And especially yeah. now with Amazon, I could self publish. Of course, comes to worse. Like right. I, there's a pipeline. Did that ever cross your mind? Was that ever an, an idea? Actually, I'm very poor at um, describing what a novel needs. You huh. know, like what he was wearing and what the room looked like. And I just, it's. I think it's because of my film sense that you, in film you just show that. And so my my strength, I think, is the dialogue. And yeah, that's why I I stuck it out. You know, because I don't want to go where I where I feel like I'm limited, you know, I, I don't think I'm, I can, it would be a real labor to, to do something like that. I mean, I've written, you know, a few short stories, right. A few poems here and there, but you know, not novels, novels scary to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll say this cause I should probably, I should probably lather on some compliments right about now. Cause uh, oh. brush against the indifference of the universe is, I mean, you know, we had, 
you know, well over 200 submissions. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, I was interested to hear what you thought were your strengths and weaknesses as a writer, because it, it definitely mm-hmm. stood out right off the bat. The mm-hmm. dialogue is so fucking strong. It was just like, oh my God, someone with an ear for dialogue finally. Mm. Um, and uh, and I'm not damning you with faint praise because there's plenty of people that have no idea how to write dialogue. And that just mm-hmm. is a killer from right off the bat. It mm-hmm. was so refreshing to go, That's oh awesome. my God, I could hear the rhythm that there's these are people that are living and breathing. Mm-hmm. Talk about your dialogue and your approach to dialogue. How much of this is innate to you do you have characters that you already have in mind are you hearing them in your head while you're writing what's your process when it comes to dialogue hmm. um <laughs> i don't know exactly it's it's all very mysterious <laughs> <laughs> no i you know sometimes uh if i have a character a strong character that i really see or i'm more or less basing it on someone i know then the dialogue comes easier. Uh, but if I'm I'm starting from scratch, it really depends on what the what the conflict is too, you know. And and I'm also brevity. I think it was Chekhov who mm. is my go-to guy. If you ask my strongest influence, uh, his his line about brevity is I can't even remember the line now. But something about brevity is, you know, you got to shoot for that all the time and. And so, because I have trouble writing longer speeches, I mean, do I do write them occasionally, but but only when I feel like they should be there. You know what I mean? So I, yeah. I a ten minute play too is a challenge because you have to have a lot happen in a short time, you know. And, and uh, so it's the back and forth is you know, I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm interested in in. When I, you know, I like to um, have the back and forth, I, that part, that's more interesting to me, sort of two characters kind of kind of dealing with what the other one just said or something. You know? Yes, absolutely. I don't write stuff that, I mean, sometimes it works where somebody says something and the other person just completely ignores it. You know, I, that happens once in a while, but I don't do that too often. Most of the time they're reacting, you know, to each other. And, um, and I, I will say, I mean, again, damning with faint praise, but so many of the things that, I mean, reading over 200 submissions wow. and you see every mistake in, in, in the book, but I mean, one of them is, I mean, the most, maybe the most refreshing thing is that you didn't start by saying, hi, Benji, I know here we are as brush salesmen in the middle of a store at this date and this time, like, oh my God, the exposition that comes out <laughs> in dialogue and you just want to throw yourself out of a window, you know, yeah. um, and, and the fact that you just you know, as any good writer knows mm-hmm. to do with dialogue, you, less is more. And the character's the mm-hmm. character. And you, if you know what they actually are going to say, the reader yeah. fills in the blanks. You don't need to yeah. beat the crap out of it. Um, so, yeah, definitely that was incredibly refreshing. Well, I have to jump in to compliment you guys, or you yourself, for reading 200 plus <laughs> plays. That's very rare, I think. Well, I, I, I mean, obviously, I cut it down to a top ten. I give it to the judges. I say, look, these are the top ten. Take it from here, and you guys make up your own minds. But yeah, yeah. it definitely is. Uh, it, it's. I'm, I'm grateful to do it. First off, because I, I feel like at least it gets our finger on the pulse of what's out there and and mm-hmm. what are where people's heads at. And 
Um, and and be able to see the depth of the quality. How many, you know, are we, is the top 10 really about the only 10 good people we could find, or is it a really deep field? So it's nice mm. to kind of get a sense of that. Yeah. But, um, but it also is a real pleasure then when work truly does pop and it mm. really rises above oh, the masses because yeah. you have something to compare it to. Um, yeah. and, uh, and on top of, I need to be excited about stuff. So I need to get turned on and you can only do that by yeah. sifting through everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, the play, okay. the, yeah. where did the, where did the play come from? Where, where did that play come from? Uh, let's think about it for a moment. That's, that's a good question. too. <laughs> where did it come from? Well, it wasn't anything in particular. Um, just, I mean, maybe, see, I've, I've read a lot about the Holocaust Actually, I read a ton of books, and uh, so maybe it came from somewhere there, you know, that I wanted to. I know that you guys felt, or the judges felt, that that, that part of it wasn't as strong. It, should, it was, you know, going too far. But I don't know how I would write that play without that part, actually. I, I, I disagreed with the judges on that. I actually loved it the oh. way it was. But I know oh, that's great. what the judges said, yeah, for what it's worth. Yeah, because yeah. um, I, I, I thought it was – I thought it was yeah. – uh, fantastic yeah. piece of work i was yeah. surprised and titillated and amused and totally you know surprised. i have to tell you this we had it read uh, my buddy and uh, another actor i know who's really good we had a reading at a theater and uh the guy the artistic director comes up to me afterwards and he says to me uh, okay i got everything but I, what, what were those yellow stars about oh come on <laughs> he did say that and I went, what <laughs> But a lot of people, wow. I mean, a number of people came up and said, oh, that was a really good play. I like, thank you for writing it and this kind yeah. of thing. So I yeah. felt pretty good about it. But you're the first people who who um, rewarded it for something. And, you know, I've sent it around a lot. So who knows? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. Yeah. I was I was thrilled. I was like, wow, this is how long ago did you write that? Probably a, at least a year. I can't remember. I could look it up probably. No, that's right. I mean, ballpark. But, yeah. 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 Okay. So relatively yeah. recently. Is, yeah. And I'm saying this because this is the first and only thing of yours that I've read. Is, yeah. But it, just in talking to you, I just, based on going, mm -hmm. the motivation to go into the Jesuits, your kind of mm -hmm. sensitivity to threats and the dynamic in the city, uh, racial injustice, whatever. Mm -hmm. Is justice a theme for you, in or injustice? Does the, do you find yes, that to be a recurring theme? And yeah. also morality, I think, is it's kind of old fashioned these days. One thing I don't write about, which is a big thing on in Broadway now, is social social kind of plays where you're making a point about something. I mean, I realize for blacks uh, people that's important for them to be finally be able to get their voices heard. You know, but but for me, I don't, you know, indirectly maybe just that kind of thing. But I don't write. And there's when you look at I, you know, I don't know if you know about NYC playwrights, where they put out notices. Yeah. That's the one I yeah. follow. Sure. And uh, they they often ask a lot of those theaters ask for things that are very specific to, you know, what are you going to say about the environment? What are right. you going to say right. about social issues? But I, I. Uh, for some reason, I basically am just interested in relationships, family relationships, and uh, you know things things along those lines. I guess I um, I want to just 
double tap this question only because I, I, I mean, it, it just came from such a pure place. And what I mean by that is that when I read the play, it wasn't trying to be many things to many people. It knew what it was about, which in a 10 minute play is pretty damn important. Right. And, and, and getting, and you're in the world immediately. There's no foreplay. You're there. It sucks you in. There's a a sense of an undercurrent of uncertainty, but fascination. And, Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously the reveals at the end, how much of this is based on current events? How much of this is based on things that you're, I mean, you talked about reading the book of the Holocaust, but obviously, I mean, you know, we've known about the Holocaust for years. Why now did that kind of come out? Well, I was just thinking, you know, all these shootings that are going on in the country (laughs) and people just living a normal life. And then suddenly it's over, you know, because somebody comes in with a gun and shoots you. And I was thinking, you know, the, the, the universe doesn't care about this stuff. Right. I mean, we don't know w- what our lifespan's going to be and when, you know, and stuff like that. So I think I, that's probably part of it. And I just said it back then because it's kind of a major uh, time for a lot of people to get killed, actually. Right. right. <laughs> We're in Ukraine now, you know. Right. Right. That whole thing. Yeah. Was that a coincidence? Uh, and I'm saying that because it felt like you were right, like you could have been writing it fascinated with these characters and then you discovered the ending as well that you're like oh and then if i said here was that the case or was or or had you planned that the whole time i think actually there's two versions of this play the first version which i, I read uh we read with a, a group of writers that i was working with recently just briefly and uh the first version ended with them just going out the two the two guys and getting killed by the Nazis. It's a similar version, obviously they were the stars. Mm-hmm. But the second version, uh, I I took this guy's suggestion that the stars that the brush, the fuller brush, was a code word for some kind of ammunition, not not overtly, but just you may not uh, haven't even considered that. But but he said wow. some people might might take that as. You know, as if these guys had to talk in code because they were, you know, getting these arms together to, you know, break Interesting. out. Interesting. So I don't know. If, you know, that huh. was his take, and so I left it sort of ambiguous. You know? Well, which is which is the great way to go. I mean, I love that yeah. somebody could interpret yeah. it any number of those ways. Did yeah. you base this on? It was the dialogue at all based on folks you knew? Where was the dialogue coming from? Uh no, not really. I just made up, you know, I was just listening to a couple of guys kind of who didn't, they weren't going to be that literate. They're going to be, they were just going to be talking about buying a brush, you know, and make it as simple as possible. And one of the, one of the other audience members told me after he saw the reading, he said, I used to sell full of brushes <laughs> back then, but I had wow. to look up whether they were still around and they are actually Wow! surprise. You know, oh, God, that's, that's from way back. Yeah. When you actually put pen to paper, what did you, what were you starting with? Had you plotted this out? Did you have no, a structure in place? I, I what were you starting with? I just start with two people talking or several people. That's how I always start. And I don't know what, normally I don't know what the ending is every once in a while, but normally I have to find the ending or the characters, as they always say, help you get to the endings. 
And if you have a surprise, that's even better. Sure. You know, sure. for an end. Did you, how, how much of the characters themselves did you know when you put pen to paper and started writing the dialogue? Did you know, well, did you even know they were Jewish? Did you know they were paintbrush salesmen? Did you know, what, think, what did you know about them? I knew they were Jewish because I gave them Jewish names mm-hmm. right away. I, I started that way, but I, uh, I knew one was going to be kind of the, you know, the one that was trying to push and the other guy was going to be the one who says, you know, no, take it easy. Don't, you know, so that was basically the contrast for the characters. Yeah. Cause, cause you know, that happens a lot. In right. Life, right. 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 Yeah. Was yeah. there a sense of, um, was there, did you know, I guess for lack of a better word, did you know the genre that you were going to write in? Was there, were there, when you were writing it, were you like, I could make this a comedy. I could make this verisimilitude. I could make this, you know, something like, was there any of that sense or did you kind of know where you were at with it? Yeah. I, I actually, to be honest, I don't, I don't think in genres much, you know, I'm not good at it. Yeah. You know, every once in a while, I wrote a detective uh, play one time. I mean, a uh, thriller, you know, but uh, that's kind of unusual for me, but the, with this piece, I like the humor to come out of the, the interaction, but not, I don't write, I can't write comedies very well. I don't even, try usually huh. which is a shame because theaters love comedies 100 percent, 100 percent. but it's <laughs> funny because because but yeah. even your dialogue there like i wouldn't have been surprised if it had gone in a very comedic direction because mm-hmm. the, the dialogue was it was natural it was like there was just so much life to it there was like mm-hmm. yeah i i could see this going any number of ways you know it was it was not mm-hmm. um it was not somber and depressing the ending is pretty shocking but yeah. it's not, it's not, you know, it, it, yeah. and that's a beauty. I think there's a beauty to that, that you're not, mm-hmm. uh, you're not projecting anything onto it. It's very yeah. organic. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the only way I know how to work. You know, I, I couldn't, you know, I'm not one of these people. I mean, I, I'm sure there are a number of them who can outline the whole thing and hit every one of their marks. You know, I, mm-hmm. I can't work that way. Yeah. Just yeah. Kidding. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been really frustrating as a screenwriter, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is all structure. It's like, <laughs> right. oh my God. Yeah, no, I know. Right. Yeah. It's brutal. Yeah. What um just to to play amateur psychiatrist with yourself for a second, wh- where does the ability to get your dialogue come from? Are you a very good listener? Are you a very good observer? Yes. Okay. Both of those things. I was told by a judge once, not in a courtroom <laughs> setting. He said, <laughs> You're a very good listener. <laughs> No, I said thanks. <laughs> you know? Yeah, my my wife is a psychotherapist, and she's an even better listener. But but maybe that's how we got together because we both listen. Yeah. Yeah. What about your understanding of character? Um, do you are you are are you interested by people? Do you enjoy people watching? Do you appreciate yes. like? Okay, that's my whole bag. Yeah. Got you. Yeah. Got you. Although you know, I mean, I spend a lot of time away from people but no but, right you know, right yeah but when i'm with people i yeah it's it's good stuff and i pick up a lot of expressions i don't know if you know anybody who says right all the time that's one of those <laughs> those people drive me crazy usually and i <laughs> see it on tv too <laughs> yeah, yeah because, no uh, where do you this got sounds so weird but um because i have my own thoughts on this i think is why i asked this um yeah. 
where do you go to keep your dialogue honed? Do you ever find yourself going out or going to a diner, eavesdropping on people around you? Do you find yourself in a bookstore? You know, like, is there stuff you do if you're like, I need to get the scent of these characters in me or just does it spark something in you that it's inspiring, that it's a launching point for future work? What do you do for that? It's interesting. I mean, I, it's not that I don't do it. It's just that I, like I said, I spend most of my time alone, you know, solitude is Mm -hmm. critical. Uh, but I, we, you know, we talk and, uh, also when I read books, I'm interested in people like, you know, the, the writers who write really good dialogue and, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I, I pay attention to that too. But as far as I, you know, catching people often on the street now, you hear people talking on their phones and they, you get a one line here and there, you know, but I, Chekhov used to write these things down and I should do that. (laughs) You know, because you miss a lot of good stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Do you do you think, I, I've thought about this a lot uh, in my own life, but I feel like a writer, because writing is so solitary, that, it's, that there is a lot of value to being in a very busy place if you're a writer, because otherwise, for me, I get depressed because yeah. I'm like, wow, I'm really all alone. I'm already alone with my thoughts, and now I'm truly physically, geographically alone. Like it kind of helps if you can just step out and go, oh yeah, shit, there's life going on all around me. Cool. (laughs) Cool. Got it. I've been at the zoo. Now I can go back inside and, you know, like, do you find that that helps then to be in a busy city like that? Yeah. Yeah. But I think even in smaller places, you could, there's coffee shops and stuff like that. Right. I mean, you, do you live in Cornwall now? I do. I I live in Cornwall now, but it's funny because I, 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 you, you, you twigged to where I'm, I'm going with this. I, uh, (laughs) I, I've wondered about my ability to write certain characters now because I've mm-hmm. gone, you know, it's not what I'm hearing every day uh, in, day out. Uh, and, um, and I was like, God, and it's so easy when you're in a certain world to just immediately hear the voices and go, yep, that's how that's said. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. the, the syntax, the, the syncopation of the speech, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Um, yeah. but now everything's skewed and I've got, you know, the Hudson, uh, Hudson Valley thing, which is great if that's what I'm writing about. It's yeah. rarely what I'm writing about, though. So it's like, okay, now mm-hmm. I got to remember, uh, what was that like? You know, um, so I, I, I wonder how much your physical location affects your ability to write characters. Do you have to write ones that are that would exist in your immediate area, or can you write people anywhere? Yeah, I, I you know, it's funny because I think I said before that I don't write much that occurs in in New York City. Yeah, my characters are usually. Pittsburghers, or one time mm-hmm. I wrote a play about the South, and the, all the characters were talking in, you know, sort of a with a Southern accent. Yeah, it, you know, not that I changed words that much, but uh, but I had a guy from the South read the play, say, "Wow, you're not from the South. You, it sounds like you know the right. It sounds like us." <laughs> you know, he was a little surprised actually. So. Maybe it's wow. a skill of being able to just uh, imagine, you know, what these people sound like just based on what you hear on the on TV and films and stuff. I don't know. Wow. But make it up. Yeah. That's crazy. Do you yeah. YouTube often? Do you ever do that just to like go, hey, it's let funny. me see I, people in that area? I use, I, I haven't, at that time, I don't know if YouTube was around when I wrote that play, actually. Okay. How, how recent was that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, yeah, I just, uh, 
And it was it that play was actually optioned for a while by a southern actress. And but she never she, we never were able to uh get it on commercially, you know. But it was fun to do. It was a fun play to write, actually. I wrote it for her. Yeah. You know, she, she wanted a vehicle, basically. Yep. So yep. gotcha. So I was able to do that at least. Um so listen, you've been super generous with your time. I don't. I want to let you go in a second here, but I want to okay. ask um, a kind of a global question. What turns you on right now when you wake up to write? What is it? Is it a theme? Is it a character? Is it a specific story that you're like, God damn, I really got to wrap my head around how to tell this story? What is it that that is turning you on? And does that change all the time? Just like, well, that was that project, but now this one, it's a completely yeah. different stimulus. Like, what yeah. is it that, that that does it for you? Oh, well, let me tell you, I'm writing a um, a trilogy, and I've written the first two plays. It's wow. based on my my mother and my father. Well, my father and my mother. My father, uh, his mother died in the Spanish flu, 1918. So I set the play right around then, and uh, he's the, his character is six years old, and uh, so I wrote that play. It's about it's about the flu, basically. And it's based on, not based on, but it's stimulated. I wrote it during COVID. Sure. Because I thought I'd never have the experience of living through right. this right. thing. Not when I did, I said, oh, I, I think I'm ready to do this, you know. So that's that play. And then uh, my mother um, set in 1940 when she got married. Uh, and he, and my father's in the play too. You know, and that, that one, I finished that play, too, uh, just recently. Um, and that's about the immigrant experience, basically, because my mother is from uh, Lebanon. She was born here, but she was taken back wow. for six years. And so that's the whole, uh, you know, getting acclimated to America. Wow. And now I'm the next play, the one I'm having the most trouble getting figuring out is about all my siblings because it's in the 60s 68 and um, they're not going to be happy about it i'm sure but, <laughs> you know wow. so that's a little bit of the you know the gotcha. so that it's a very interesting that's really interesting for me to do so that that you know i try to think about that and make some notes and stuff but you know it's mostly it's kind of mundane in some ways i get up and i go uh i hope i can get to it today you know, because it's it's much easier to just sit around and you know procrastinate and read news and books and whatever and do other stuff. But uh, but but you know, if if once once I get into the whole story and figure it out, you know, I'm trying to figure out this play uh, um, that I'm rewriting is about a it's about a black daughter who's being raised by a white father, and we're not sure the white father is. Uh, really her father that's the oh, one mystery of the play he might have adopted yeah. her somewhere but he hasn't uh -huh. he hasn't come clean about that oh, he works as a butler for some really rich guy and uh so and the other character in the play is this giant puppet like a bread and puppet uh who who's inside the brain the, the mind of the father who's always constantly criticizing what he's doing and and just being annoying, you know, it's like wow. you're when wow. you when something inside of you is questioned. Yeah. Everything you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's it's been a it's an interesting piece to try to figure out. But the worst, 
the hardest part for me is figuring out the black daughter. How much of the black uh, voice is is necessary? You know, is to to because she's I feel like she's about eighteen and she's just beginning to she's just going down to see her birth mother who lives in Barbados, who abandoned her when she was born. So I figure out why she did that and. You know, mm-hmm. so it's all this stuff is going on, but the but the daughter is just realizing that maybe uh, I should, you know, she's trying to decide if if this was bad that she was raised in the white world, right? You know, and all that stuff that they need right. to their identity, right? My, right. You know, like the whole Barack Obama thing. Who, right? Who am I identifying with here? Right. You know? and, right. Right. Uh, anyway, yeah. Wow, that's a really interesting, really interesting stories. Yeah. Um, so that's really what preoccupies your bandwidth, figuring yeah. out the stories. Figuring and, out the story, yeah. definitely. Yeah. 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 That's a big challenge. Yeah. Yeah, that would be. That that's how many projects do you have going on right now? Well, that's that's the rewrite is the main one. Okay. Uh, I haven't written a one act, I mean a 10 minute for a while because I was, you know, you got two hundred plus because they have to be some veteran connect. Right. But a lot of these places get 800. Oh, plus. yeah, 100%. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I yeah. can't believe people can read that many plays. I mean, right. that's right. ridiculous. You're right. you know, they, maybe they look at the cast or they start reading the first few pages. I can understand, you know, it's... Well, you look, for, be, you look for reasons not to finish. It's right, like, it, right. you, you go, you go. okay, yeah. and that's why the second I hear a bunch of exposition in the dialogue, I'm like, cool, done with that one. That's done right. with that one, yeah. You, you, you're you not killed it right it. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, you just yeah. invalidated yourself, but yeah. But um, even yeah. the fact that you look at them is, I appreciate, you know, that's really good. Because some people would just, uh, you know, I never heard of this guy. <laughs> Put him in the pile. You know? But that, that's the beautiful thing of me having just gotten out. I haven't heard of anybody. So it's like, it's all new to me again. It's, <laughs> oh, yeah. it's a great problem to have, you know. Yeah. Dennis, this is, um man, it's great to talk to you. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I'm. I feel somewhat deprived that I've only read one of your plays. I wish I had more context that I could poke and prod about your process and your, the themes that you deal with. But I, I love the play, and uh, yes, it was a privilege yeah. to read it. I, I really enjoyed it, and Oof. just I was really interested to talk to you about about the play and where it came from. And um, yeah, I love I love yeah. just being able to sit and talk about it. Yeah, let me just mention that. Do you know New Play Exchange? Do you know that? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on there. So if you ever have any free time (laughs) and you want to see what else uh, that I poke into something, and hopefully you won't run into any exposition in the first page, (laughs) that's the killer. But I appreciate you talking. This has been the best interview I've ever had. So uh, thank you for that. And you're doing really good work, I could tell. That that means a lot, and, and thank yeah. you. But but I mean, it's it's I'm only as good as the submissions we get, and and you know, getting work like yours means an awful thank lot. You. I want to give you a chance to to do uh, your favorite thing in the world and market. Um, where should people hunt you down? You talked about New Play Exchange. If they want to see your work, yes, on New Play that's, Exchange, that's the place. Yeah. Okay. Any other sites, social media, anything? No, like I don't that? have a website because I'm waiting for some big big explosion of recognition and then i'll start my website so i could say look at this <laughs> but i've been waiting on quite a while you know so, gotcha gotcha yeah um hey this was a pleasure right. let's yeah, let's talk again too. okay thanks chris take care of yourself that was the savage wonder of dennis meadows um 
I think I say the same thing almost every single time. I'm like, boy, I really enjoyed talking to that person. And it's because I almost inevitably do. Um, and that's certainly the case for Dennis. There's uh, a lot that I forgot to kind of mention about uh, Dennis that was intriguing. And I think now that you guys have heard the interview, it's probably a good time for me to talk about some of that. You know, um, first off, one thing that I, I, I think everybody kind of bears with and has figured out, but I'll just say it here. You know, we do um, include immediate family members in our family of, uh, and we talk about veterans, you know, military, fire, law enforcement, EMS, intelligence services, DOD employees and contractors, even the foreign service, the whole widespread profession of arms and immediate family members are all eligible. So when we talk about talking to a veteran in the arts, that is our definition of veteran, which is obviously not the same as the government's definition of veteran, but uh, it's worth saying because, um, you know, I kind of take it for granted because I work here and, and I know what the rules are of, of who's eligible to write stuff uh, that we'll consider. Um, but I realized that I didn't say that up front and that might be confusing or mystifying some people. So, um, but then I want to talk about Dennis's particular veteran um, connection that made him eligible. Uh, Cause I think that's an interesting story and hopefully you guys appreciated hearing about his brother's brother's, plural service in uh, Vietnam or in and around Vietnam, I should say. And, and Dennis's own uh, thoughts about, you know, getting into the draft lottery and leaving the Jesuits and, um, you know, the Vietnam war and his mil and potential military service and all that. And it's, um, it's interesting I don't know. It's really interesting uh, what his brothers went through and that they didn't seem like they had talked a whole lot about the different paths that they'd gone on. And I think there's uh, I, I say this because Dennis mentioned at the end how he's working on the trilogy uh, that's going to include his brothers. And boy, it'd be interesting to, to hear um, because those are some very different paths that they walked down in the Vietnam War. And I think that's a very relevant story. I don't know. Just really interesting stuff. There's so many, so many interesting threads to Dennis's life. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's uh, he's got to submit more stuff to us. <laughs> I would love to. I would love to see it. Anyway, um, so I, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. Um, you know, I, it gave me a lot of food for thought. Okay, um, stuff going on at Fat Rep that you guys should know about. So we have a couple of things. Obviously, for any and everything going on at VetRep, the best thing to do is to go to VetRep.org. That's V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org. And when you're there, you can go to our Now Playing tab, scroll down. You will see the subscribe button to subscribe for free to our daily literary blog, which also doubles as our mailing list. So every day in your email inbox, you will receive an email from us with a sample of veteran writing, original veteran writing. Uh, usually fiction or poetry. And then below that, we'll put a bunch of shameless plugs to keep everybody in the loop on what we're doing. Um, so that's the best thing to do. So if you just heard that and now want to end the episode, you will not miss anything else. But I'll spell out some of the stuff that we have going on for you guys here. Uh, we are starting acting classes at VetRep. Why? Well, a lot of 
people around our neck of the woods in Cornwall uh, are, you know, have asked, uh, you know, is there could be a community theater aspect to vet rep? And, you know, there wasn't going to be, I mean, it's a professional theater and we do things professionally, but I was like, there's a lot to be said for having a good fun community theater vertical, let's call it, uh, at vet rep. Um, but then we also got approached by, uh, uh, mental health administration, administration association, MHA, anyway, whatever, um, uh, for Dutchess in Orange County. And, uh, they asked about, you know, could, uh, veterans, um, you know, be open, be take some degree, some sort of art therapy, uh, classes with us. And, uh, I was like, boy, that's, that's a pretty good instigating moment for me to start, uh, an acting class, you know, open it up to community and the community being both the veteran community and the local community, uh, to come in and, um, and have fun and walk a mile in some fictional, usually characters shoes. So, um, I will be teaching, if not all of them, the majority of the acting classes, um, I can tell you right now, a lot of the exercises will be comedic improv based. Um, there will be some Stanislavski and some Meisner, but you know, we're going to have fun. It's not a homework, uh, class, you know, it's not something you have to go back and work with a scene partner on something and come back and do scene work. Uh, it's gonna be something where you can literally just show up, have fun, move around a little bit, um, go on a little bit of an emotional journey and, uh, and just have a really cool Saturday. So uh, all those details are at vetrep.org. You can go there and see our acting class. Um, and that obviously will be in person here. At, uh, at, we'll actually do it in the parlor, uh, the vet rep parlor uh, in Cornwall. Now, we'll also be having writing classes. Those are for veterans only. And again, it's our definition of veteran. So military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence services, foreign service, DOD contractors or employees, and immediate family members are all eligible. And uh, there, that will be for uh, playwriting. It'll be a playwriting class on, I believe we're looking at Wednesday nights. But go to vetrep.org, you'll see all the information there. And uh, those classes will be, um, both those classes, both the acting and writing classes will be once a month. Uh, I think it make a lot of sense to do them every week, but uh, first things first, we'll do it once a month. And if there's enough demand and people really like them and want to start doing them more, uh, we'll start having overflow classes and hopefully that will build out to a weekly, to weekly sessions. And, um, yeah, that'll be really fun. So the playwriting class will be, um, building, you know, again, it's, it, there's no homework assigned. If there's a, project of yours that you want to continue to work on and build over time, then you're free to work on that, obviously, on your own as much as you want in between classes. But uh, it's the kind of thing we are designing to be a drop-in class. So you can come in, work just that day, and not have to work again. You know, not there's no follow-on assignments. Um, again, unless you want there to be. So uh, a couple of those are really cool lines of effort that we are very excited about. Um, for both of those, if you are both those classes, if you are a veteran, um, reach out to us because we have ways of potentially, uh, giving you scholarships to come and take the classes. 
writing class is 50 bucks per person. The acting class is 25 bucks per person. Um, so if you're a veteran, reach out to us because we can, I don't want to say we can definitely get you a scholarship, but I, we have a lot of ways of working around that to make sure money's not an obstacle for our veteran community. Okay, so there's that stuff. Um, we also have Philip Kors' new play, War Wound, that we will be doing a public workshop, public reading of it on February, God, I got to remember this, February 25th, which is a Saturday night. It'll be at uh, Highland Falls American Legion Post, Post 633. Uh, they are sponsoring the event, so we will be uh, doing this uh, kind of as a fundraiser for them because they're they're hurting, they're having a, a rough time of it. But um, you know, we wanted so we thought if we can kill a couple birds with one stone and do a great play reading, uh, professionally cast, um, and have a feedback session at the end, so audience members can tell everybody, tell the playwright, tell the actors their feedback. Um, that would be awesome. We've had we've had a great experience doing these kind of public workshops in the past, uh, so we're looking forward to this one and then. Throughout, we will, um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll try to raise some money for the American Legion since they were, um, you know, sponsoring this. So, really cool stuff. Again, that also is at vetrep.org. So again, go to the now playing tab, and you will see how to uh, get tickets for it. it. They're free tickets to the public workshop, to public reading. Uh, you will be solicited when you're there, but it is a public reading uh, for free. So you can get in the door and listen for free. Okay. Yeah, that's those are the three main things to really plug. Um, I guess it's worth saying that, yes, April 13th, Alexandria, Virginia, we will have our next Savage Wonderground event. So, you know, keep your ears open for that. We'll have more details about who, what, when, where, why uh, as we go along. But, uh, you know, just pencil that in on your calendar for right now if you're in that area. Or if you're not and you want to be, whatever. Okay. Uh, yeah, go to vetrep.org. You'll get all the details on any and everything related to us that you could possibly want to know. I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we will dive further into a veteran or immediate family member's own personal, unique, savage wonder.